Um, but we're jumping into a new, a new series today. My name's Alex, if I haven't said that. I'm the pastor here, and alongside Kath, I've got the privilege of leading this community. And men, we would love to know your story. And so come up, say hi to us afterwards, and we'd love to just have a, a chat, maybe over dinner next week. That'd be wonderful. We're starting a new series today called Crucial Conversations, and here's our goal. Our goal is really simple. We want to respond to the questions of culture with the beauty of Jesus. Why? We believe that everyone's asking questions in culture, both from within the church and from outside of the church. Maybe you've experienced this in the workplace or at school or at university or in your family. People have questions about Christianity. I don't know if you watched the news this week, but there was a lot of questions about particular churches from Melbourne about their position on certain topics, having a crucial conversation around it. It's important to be able to have conversations and let people ask questions of the church because as Christians, we believe that Jesus is the truth. And as the truth, we believe that he's not shy from our questions, but will actually stand up to critique and reason and respond with validity and legitimacy. It's really important to have crucial conversations. But there's also questions that get raised from within the church, questions around why I should believe what we believe, or perhaps particular topics that come up just in the rhythm of everyday life. And today is one of those examples. Today I'm speaking into the topic of connection, contending for relationship in a world of technology. Contending for relationship in a world of technology. And as I do that, I want to give you two words uh, to sort of split your attention across as we open up here and tell two quick stories. Two words, personal and personalised. Personal and personalised. A few years ago, there was a movie that came out by the name of Her. You'll see a picture of Walking Phoenix embodying a character named Joseph Tweebly. And it's this story of a man who's depressed and anxious and lonely, and he's just been divorced from his wife. And in this depressed, anxious, lonely state, he tries to console himself, so he buys a device, and on this device is a software program, and this software program has a bit of a personality, sort of like this early example of artificial intelligence. It would talk to him. Uh, Sort of parallel examples of this kind of device that Joseph bought would be uh, Alexa, or Hey Google, or Siri. And... Uh, He buys this device, puts it into his living room, and he starts conversing with it. And in conversing with it, he builds a relationship with it. And in building a relationship with it, he ends up building an intimate relationship with it, so much so that he would say he fell in love with her. Her name was Samantha, played by Scarlett Johansson. Husky, attractive voice just bellowing down the artificial speakers of this device. But he gets to this moment where he's conversing with her, And he asks her this question. How many other people are you talking to right now? And she's like, oh, a couple of thousand. Then she says, and I've fallen in love with about a hundred or so of them. And the movie finishes with him looking out across the sky, sort of the, the light shining in the skyscraper. Skyline, that's the word, there it is. And he's all alone, no devices, and his neighbour's doing the same thing. Joseph Tweebly lived in a highly personalised world. Everything catered to his attention, but there was something amiss about it. Contrast that with a lady named Marina Evelyn Keegan, born in 1989, died in 2012. She graduated from Yale University. She set herself up with a job at uh, the New York Times as a junior editor. And she was uh, celebrating in the summer in a car just on Cape, I can't remember, it's some Cape in Massachusetts. 
and the car crashes, she loses her life. But when she was alive, she wrote this famous essay called The Opposite of Loneliness, and after her death, it went viral, downloaded over 1.4 million times, beautifully poetic, wonderfully meditative kind of poem, and she reflects on what it's like to have a personal encounter with people, to live in a personal world, not a personalised world with devices, but a personal world. And she's got these beautiful lines. She says this, we don't have a word for the opposite of loneliness, but if we did, I could say that's what I want in life. It's not quite love and it's not quite community. It's just this feeling that there are people, an abundance of people who are in this together, who are on your team. And here's the line I love the most. I've shared it with some of the team at New Life Brisbane. When the check is paid and no one leaves the table. Do you know that kind of relationship with people? You've got no reason to be at the table, yet you stay. One of my favourite experiences in ministry is, you know, maybe it might be like a Christmas spectacular service and everything's packed up and tidied and done and it's time to go home but all the team just find themselves sitting just up here, just in one another's presence, you know? Highly personal, wonderfully intimate, richly tangible, visceral relationship. And as we unpack this topic, this crucial conversation, the question that I want to ask repeatedly throughout the next 20 to two hours is what's the life we're looking for? What's the life we want? Do we want a highly personalised world within which devices cater to our every need, perhaps funnel to us a particular experience that is only matched by our own lives? Or do we want a personal world, one that's messy, but man, the rewards are greater. Man, it's deeper. Man, it's way more beautiful. Do we want a personalised world or a personal world? What's the life that we're looking for? Connection, contending for relationship in a technological world. Here's the basic point I want to begin with. It's an assumption. It's this. Our world is steeped in devices. In your pocket right now, you've got a smartphone. On that phone is the ability, there's more computing power, more technology in them that was needed to send the original man to the moon. It's a highly powerful device. And if you were to ask me, Alex, do you think it's evil? I'd say, no, I'm just kidding, I won't say yes. But if you were to ask me, man, what do you think about it? I wouldn't say it's evil or good, I'd just say it's powerful to form you. And one of the things we're passionate about at New Life is not asking, man, on one level, we want to ask who's, who's God made us to be in terms of our position before him legally, righteous, loved, forgiven, washed clean, set free. But then too, on top of that, in response to that, who are we becoming? And how do we participate in the becoming that God by his spirit in the church through grace by faith would help us to be? I was preparing this week and I text my wife, Kath, after doing some research. And um, let me just be really honest on this one. This is the sermon I've wanted to preach for the last 10 years. This is something about which I've meditated deeper and deeper the more time's gone on. And it's the kind of thing that I wish I had three hours to unpack. But I was doing some research further this week and I texted my wife and I was like, babe, I think I'm just gonna get up on Sunday and tell everyone to throw out their phones. Just because the more you wrestle with some of the research and literature on this stuff, the more insidious you think of the ways by which technology sort of weasels its way into our lives. But at the same time, I wanna just acknowledge in the room that there are people here who actually work full time with technology. Let me give you a great example. We do, as a church family, church online. So clearly New Life's position on whether we should utilise technology to further the kingdom of God is one of positivity. We're for it. Or I'll give you another example. Right now I'm being amplified by a microphone to communicate a message. We're for technology. Some people in the room 
when I say when I'm talking on technology, you'll say, oh, I can't wait for Alex to just give us a bunch of rules so we can finally like, put strict regiment around our lives with how we engage our devices. Others of you are highly nervous about this topic because you're like, man, I actually make a living. Uh, I might be an influencer, I might work on YouTube. You actually make a living by virtue of inhabiting the ethereal sort of Twitter sphere of this thing we call modern life. And I would just say, man, this is good. This is a good, wonderful thing. What an opportunity to think, right? What an opportunity for a conversation. So how do we as the people of God think about this helpfully? Unpack some of the ways in which we could talk about it just by calling a spade a spade. And then what are some practical things we can walk forward with as the people of God? Not rules that restrict us, but actually platforms that we can form ourselves in partnership with the Holy Spirit into the image of Jesus. Last two people in the room before I actually start preaching would just be this. Uh, there's going to be some Gen Zs in the room, those born after 1995 or even sort of born uh, even later afield than that. And you'll be sitting here and, man, you'll be like, oh, this is, this is going to be confronting for me because you'd be the digital natives in the room. You'd be the people when the iPhone was made in 2007, Facebook came shortly after that. You don't know a world without this kind of way, like, you know, we used to talk back in the day about uh, sort of signing on to the internet. But now the internet is like, wait, I'm in it, you know, it's, it's here. It's like all around me. But then there's going to be people in the room who you might, you might call them Gen Xs, uh, sort of unhelpfully called boomers. And you're sitting here thinking, I am... I hope the Gen, Gen Z person here listens to this, you know what I'm saying? I hope they really take notes. And there's some research that was done by Barna, a Christian group in partnership with a guy named Andy Crouch a few years back. And one of the things they discovered was um, Gen Z were interviewed on what they'd changed about their childhood. And one thing they said was this, the highest voted score was this, I wish my parents spent less time on their phone. And so here's the, le- here's, the, here's the point. When we talk about this, we're actually all on a level playing field because all of us have habits that are sometimes helpful, other times hindrances to the becoming that God would have us invest in as his people, particularly when it comes to relationships with technology. And so there's a bunch of prefaces. Here's the question I want to ask. What's the life that we're looking for? A personalized life insulated with devices or a personal life that has good habits and boundaries yet at the same time utilizes devices and technology for the good of people and the glory of God? What are we looking for? To unpack this, I want to go first to a text. It's Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 and onwards. It's called the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word which maps the first word of this text here. Listen, take heed of, get your ears around this. Get this down your ear sockets and have a good, long look at it. No, I'm just kidding. But listen, Shema. It would say, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now, it's called the Shema. This is sort of what um, I was chatting with someone this week talking about a different text, uh, and I called that text like the John 3.16 of the biblical writers. I'd say the same about this passage because this passage comes up all the time for the biblical writers. It's sort of funneled and filtered through all the way that they talk about Jesus and God and the church. It's sort of like a, it, it, it's, the, it's the bottleneck of biblical revelation. God is one. God is one. Love him with your heart. Love him with your soul. Love him with your strength. He's one. There's no one like him. Have no gods before him. He is one. Yahweh. No one like our king in heaven. You should love him with your heart, soul, and strength. This passage goes on to say this, verses 6 onwards. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. 
Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Back in the day and still to this day, there's a small handful of trained scribes and what they do is they take verse five from this passage. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they'd scribe it on a bit of paper. They'd put it inside a box called a mezuzah. Why don't you turn to your person next to you and say the word mezuzah? Bit of Hebrew, not bad for an afternoon in the city. And what Jews would do and continue to this day to do is they'd put it inside a box, they'd take that box, they'd nail it to their doorframe, just about shoulder height, so that every time they walk inside their home and go outside of their home, they'd be reminding themselves that there's no one like, no one like Yahweh. Yahweh is one. We need to love him with our whole heart, mind, and strength. But here's what happened later. A debate arose between the rabbis, and this sort of trickled all the way down through generations, and they were asking this question. Look, you're a rabbi. You're a smart guy. You're a teacher here in Israel. How would you sum up the whole law, the whole prophets, the whole of what Christians call the Old Testament, the whole of what Hebrews called the Hebrew Old Testament, how would you sum it up? And most rabbis agreed that actually the best way to sum up the whole Old Testament, which is like three quarters of this book here, yeah, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength. But one rabbi added two things. In the first century, the rock star rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, turned up on the scene and he was asked by some religious elites, How would you sum up the whole of the law and the prophets? And here's what he said, Mark 12. And I'm going to be reading from a bit earlier, but on the screen you'll have verses 30 or so there. One of the great, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important one? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, little addition here, Jesus. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Here are the two additions. Jesus adds mind to the makeup of the human being that's meant to offer its whole self before God in love. And then Jesus says the best way to outwork that vertical love that we give in adoration and affection and attention to God should also be displayed horizontally for people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love your neighbour as yourself. I asked before this question, what's the life we're looking for? Here's the biblical answer that God would have us adopt if we follow Jesus. The kind of love that grows in its capacity to love God and love others. Now, there's a few steps in what I just said because it's really easy to say the kind of life that loves God and loves others. That sounds like a tick box. That sounds like just an act I do when I feel like it. But this is not a question of a command. This is a a becoming. And it's different. Because if I were to ask you, man, do you love God with all your capacities, heart, soul, mind, and strength? You might say, yeah, 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 yep, yeah, yep, yeah, okay, maybe. And if I was to say, do you love your neighbor as yourself? You'd be, you know, you'd stammer out the same kind of, vibe. It'd be like, uh, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, th- I think I, I agree with that as a sentiment, you know, but do you from the inside out, from the depths of your being, 
eviscerating out of the, the deepest place of you? Do you just have this overwhelming, overflowing, all the time in an ever-increasing way, love for God and for people? And the Bible would say that by the Spirit, looking at Jesus in the community of God's people, that is entirely possible. It's the call of the Christian life. It's everything that every human, ultimately the deepest parts of themselves longs for, to love this divine being who made us for himself and to love one another in like fashion. So here's the biblical definition of being human. It's a heart. It's a soul. It's a mind. It's a strength. You are a heart. I don't know if you know that. You have desires. You have drive. You have passion. Sometimes those passions, those drives and those desires, they actually do something in you that propel you in a way that you didn't think was possible before. And you look back and you ask the question, why? And the answer is heart. You have drive. You have passion. Why? You're a heart. But you're also a soul. There's this sense within every single human being that we're not what meets the eye, that there's more to us than the meat that we appear to be, that you are a soul, that there's something interior to your very person that sure, you're gonna, you're gonna invite someone one day as a soulmate to try and discover alongside you and you will find it ever fleeting as you try and understand yourself and your identity but there's this interior part to who you are. It's called your soul, you are a soul. You're also a, uh, you're also a mind. Humans have this incredible ability from the time we're young to the time we're old to reflect, to reason, to use our capacity to think back and look forward and try and be reasonable about the lives we're living and intentional with who we're becoming. You are a mind. And then the Hebrew scriptures would say you're also a strength. That is something of power to you. Think about it like this. Um, one writer put it like this. He said, um, humans aren't as agile as cats. We're not as fast as leopards. And we're definitely not as strong as bulls. But human beings in a unique way have the ability to combine the speed, agility, and strength in no way that other creatures can. That's, there's something about you, this inbuilt capacity that no one can rob from you and your task as the person before the face of God is to take forward and develop and grow. This is the biblical definition of what it means to be human. Now, you came here think, thinking Alex is gonna speak into tech. That's where we're going now, because if you don't get this right, you will think about tech in unhelpful ways. And what I want to do is not give us rules. I want to give us frameworks through which we can think about taking this forward ourselves. Because here's the thing we want to say. We want to say, man, technology doesn't affect us. But when you realize that human beings are a heart, soul, mind, strength, complex, designed for love, then you'll reflect on technology in a whole different way. You'll start asking the question, how is this affecting me in small, micro-practical kind of ways, inflecting the person I'm becoming, such that if, you're to, you know, if I was to take an audit of my life after three days with a new phone versus 10 years with a new phone, you'd start to think through the ways by which it actually does affect us. Sherry Turkle, she's a psychologist from MIT, and a few years ago she wrote a book called Alone Together. Such a scary title. Why we expect more from technology and less from one another. And she had these fascinating words to say. She said, technology doesn't just do things for us, it does things to us, changing not just what we do, but who we are. How can I give you an example of this? Well, I want you to think for a moment. You're going to get interactive. I'm really excited about this moment, actually. On the screen behind me, you'll see uh, two images. And I didn't come up with this illustration or this practice. This comes from a guy named Andy Crouch, whose writing on technology and faith is incredibly insightful, profound, and meditative. But he gives this example and he says, there's one word that sums up what these two images represent. 
play. You can play a violin. And you can play music on Spotify. But they're very different activities. And if I was to ask you, what is the difference between pressing play on Spotify and playing the violin? What would you say? Why don't you turn to the person next to you, get in twos or threes if you want to, and just think about this. What would the difference be? Go for it. 30 seconds. Wonderful conversation happening. I'm going to take this to the floor, actually. And maybe I'll just come down. And uh, we're just going to go to the front row here. And what conversation do we have here? Can I ask, what would the difference between these two kinds of play be? Who would like to speak? Yeah, Luke, wonderful. I said effort, and Aaron said growth. I didn't understand Aaron's answer, but yeah. <laughs> That's great. Effort and growth, okay. I imagine you're talking about the violin there. Yeah, very helpful. <laughs> Effort, play, wonderful. All right, one more, one more. Here we go. How about here? Wonderful, great. Jess, go for it. One is creating and one is consuming. Okay, wonderful. Okay, That's strong. Let's pray, we're done. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this is so helpful. I've asked this question uh, twice today, this morning at Coolangatta, and one of the helpful distinctions they made on top of all this helpful sort of insight is one's proactive, one's passive. Um, one's difficult at first, uh, but over time with effort and training becomes highly rewarding the more you develop the skill set. The other can sort of diminish in its ability to provide reward. Uh, by virtue of the ease with which it starts, but over time, the longevity with which it sort of returns with diminishing um, pleasure. Now, here's the question. Does that make one of them evil? No. But here's what I think this shows us. I think it shows us that there are things in life that actually don't ask us to give any of ourselves to them, because of which they over time dull the capacities that God's endowed us with, the result of which is ultimately dulling those capacities. Now that's a scary thought, but if you go with that thought process, It'll lead you to say this, the technology is not evil. And how do I know this? The wheel is considered technology, right? Back in the day, I don't know what they had before the wheel, but this awesome development meant that they could cart gear. But you realize that advance in technology, whether it be the wonder of the rocket or the amazement of modern medicine, or whether it be the smart device in our pocket, they're not evil or good, they're powerful. And their power exists in their ability to form us into the image of something that if we're not careful or reflective or critical, 
could not be the image God intends us into which likeness to become. Here's the paradox. Andy Crouch says this. Here's the heart of the paradox. Technology is a brilliant, praiseworthy expression of human creativity and cultivation of the world, but it is at best neutral in actually forming human beings who can create and cultivate as we were meant to. Let me put it this way. Right now I'm using a microphone that allows me to amplify my voice, but I did not get good at speaking and preaching because of the technology I had at my fingertips. I had to cultivate something, right? You look at a carpenter who might be able to use a nail gun to speed up the process with which they build a house, but it isn't a marvel to see them develop the capacity they need, the hand-eye coordination, the endurance and bodily strength when they nail in a nail. Think of someone who's playing the violin. They start off, if you've... Not so great. But after time and effort and fatigue and reflection, they, they're still not so great. And then 10 years later, maybe, you know, we've got some violinists in our church and they would attest to this. Or here's one. Think of relationships. Think of the ease with which technology has endowed us with the ability to communicate with one another, but then reflect on the depth of those kinds of relationships. Now, it's wonderful that when COVID hit, we had a thing called Zoom, and we could connect with people all around the world. But imagine the kind of life where it's normal for the bill to be paid and no one leaves. To have this intertwining, intermingling of souls in love with one another in love with God. What's the life you are looking for? Technology is a beautiful expression. I was at small group this week. I'm looking at the clock. I'm going to preach over today. I thought I might. And someone was talking about coding. And I was like, hey, Paul tells us not in 1 Corinthians not to speak in a tongue. We need an interpreter. <laughs> but you know what was delightful? Just hearing them love it. And talk about sort of solving problems that are in their purview as they outwork their job and use their capacities to think and reflect, and that's good. Or think about there's this wonderful uh, sort of app, I think it is, on the smart on the, um, the Apple Watch. And if you fall over, it like alerts the authorities and maybe a loved one that you've had a fall and you probably need some attention, maybe some medical attention. It is a wonderful expression of the things that humans have cultivated because of which technology expresses it. But it can so easily become a distraction or something we use to insulate ourselves from one another and from God and ultimately insulate ourselves from ourselves without the ability to reflect. I was doing some digging this week and um, there was a guy named Wolfgang Schultz who in 2016, a Cambridge academic, And he was one of the guys who made breakthroughs in researching and studying the way by which the dopamine reward system in the human is rewarded um, in gambling. And uh, the dopamine, the dopamine sort of hit in the human brain, this chemical dopamine hit, it's sort of this, um, most people call it pleasure. There are other ways to talk about what it does, but pleasure is a helpful word. And... uh, it really responds to highly random rewards. So if you, you know, put a coin in, you get three, three coins back on a poker machine, it, it won't actually sort of addict you. But if you put a coin in and you get something back, you put two more coins in, you get nothing back, you put five more coins in, you get something small back, you put 10 more coins in, you get something big back, put another coin in, something small back, so on and so forth. 
Man, this random response of reward, it is like ecstasy for the human brain. And scholars have noted and academics have noted that this is the same thing that Facebook set up with their notification system. That Instagram and social media have set up with their notification system. I heard another, I read another this really scarily said that there's two kinds of companies in this world that call their clients users. Drug companies and software. And you hear that and you're like, oh, is Alex now going to tell me to throw my phone out finally? Like, it's just been this like long preamble? No, 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 no. But here's what I want to say. We live in an isolated and disconnected world where it's so easy to just insulate our lives by looking at the dull blue glow of a rectangular screen. And the more and more I learn about these things, the more I want to say, yeah, that's by design. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever found yourself uh, with a friend and uh, you've got to get them some information from your phone? Maybe it's the contact details of another friend or you want to look up a photo and you get your phone out and you start to use it and then you ask, why did I get my phone out again? That's by design. Because the most valuable thing you can give anything is your attention. And people who design software, particularly smart devices that we fondle in our fingertips, they know this. Or have you ever had the experience of lying in your bed late at night? You're looking up, there's this dull blue glow of a screen, and then it hits you in the head. Has anyone had that experience? Yes, yes, this is a millennial problem. No, I'm just kidding. It's a human experience. It hits you in the head, you know? You get a black eye for a little bit. In 2018, Theresa May, the Prime Minister of the UK, she appointed what she called the Cabinet Minister for Loneliness. It was a solo job. I've got to claim that's not actually my joke. I stole it from an old colleague. In 2018 as well, Australia, there's an organisation called the APS. They did something in partnership with Swinburne University and they surveyed Australians asking them how lonely they feel and one in three Australians expressed that often they feel lonely. Around the same time, a senator from the US, Ben Sass, part of the Republican Party, he wrote a book called Why We Hate Each Other. And he said one of the reasons we're experiencing political polarisation, both on the internet, then face-to-face, and especially at our dinner tables, is because we're lonely, we're isolated. And that technology has this ability to cultivate this isolation, this echo chamber of me. Now, three minutes ago, I talked about this wonderful thing on the smartwatch that's a beautiful advancing technology that gives safety to our lives. I talked about thinking of friends in my small group expressing their love for writing code So here's what we want to say. It's the paradox of technology. Technology has this insidious way of funneling itself into our lives and insulating us from God, from one another, and from ourselves. But it's also this wonderful expression of human creativity, the wonderful result of a cultivated life that actually seeks to develop the capacities that God gave us to love him and love one another. So what do we do? What do we do? I want to finish with a quote and give us five practical things with the aim of contending for relationship in a technologically rich world. Here's the quote. Is it a coincidence or just a kind of grand irony that loneliness has spiked just as our media became social, our technology became personalised and our machines learned to recognise our faces? 
Here's the question I want to ask us as a church before we get practical. What's the life we're looking for? Who do you want to become? How do you want to take the God-given capacities that everyone in this room has been endowed with and steward them, cultivate them, take them forward to love him, love others, and experience ourselves as we were made to be experienced? How do we want to do that? What's the life we're looking for? A few years ago, there was a book written called The Nudge. And it was written by Richard Hay Thaler and Cass R. Sunstein. And they develop a framework for thinking through practically how to experience discipline in life. I want to unpack that framework and give us five quick things. The framework's this. Whenever you've got a goal in life, maybe you want to become a marathon runner, maybe you want to become like a really awesome bicycle rider, maybe you want to learn to play the violin, what you need to get there is discipline. You need discipline. You need to be able to wake up every single day, run 5Ks for five five days in a row, next week 7Ks for five days in a row, the week after that 10Ks, you need discipline. Uh, But what do you do when you experience, like all humans do, discipline fatigue or decision fatigue or you actually just don't have it within you to actually do the task you've set out to do. Here's what they say. You need nudges. Nudges are things you do outside of yourself, organising in your environment so you can make it easier to choose towards the discipline. Give you an example. Let's say I want to run a marathon and I'm training for it and I'm finding it really difficult and I don't have the discipline to actually train for the marathon. What do I do? Well, to make it easier for myself when I wake up the next day, I get my shorts out, my socks out, my, pant, uh, my, my shirt out, my shoes out, get my garment charged and get everything sorted, lay that out in the living room so that when I wake up the next day, I don't have to go looking for my stuff and tilt myself in the direction of thinking this is too hard to accomplish. I, I organise my environment in a way that tilts me towards the discipline that's going to help me become the person God wants me to become or in this case, run the marathon, that kind of thing. And he says, for all of us to get to the place we want to go, we need nudges and we need disciplines. We need to train our own capacities, push ourselves to the limit so we can increase that limit. And then at the same time, we need nudges. We need to organise our external environment to make that discipline easier. And here's the scary thought that he has. Your phone in your pocket is a nudge. The notification we get from whatever social media that we're subscribed to, that's a nudge. The way you organise your living room is a nudge. The way you structure your week is a nudge. The way you let yourself entertain thoughts in life, it's a nudge. And in hearing this, some of us might be like, oh, that's scary, that's condemning. No, 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 this is a powerful, liberating concept. There is a way to organise our lives before the face of God so we develop the capacities that he endowed us with in the first place. What a wonderful invitation. So how can we discipline and nudge our way towards developing the capacities that all humans have been gifted with by God? Five, first one is this. Take an audit of your micro-practices. Micro-practices. 
I ask people, who do they think they are? A lot of people will say, oh, I'm the big things in life. What do I mean by that? They'll say their job, where they live, what they do for work, that kind of thing. They'll sort of describe who they are and who they're becoming in terms of the big things that they're a part of. Something I realised a while ago was simply this, that actually we're tilted more into becoming a certain kind of thing by the things we do between the big things. What do I mean? Great example is this. Uh, Small group's finished. Everyone's gone home. Maybe you're at home. And it's sort of like the twilight zone, half an hour before you get into bed. What do you do? Now, for Kath and I, here's my guilty pleasure. I love watching cooking videos on YouTube. There's these new things called shorts, and everyone's cooking Wagyu these days. And I'm just like, that's a good crust on that steak. I will watch you. And I'll watch it again and again and again. Micro practice. Or you're, you're between things and you're parked in the car, and maybe you're alone. What do you do? Now, what you do isn't, it might not be evil, but here's the thing that this whole sermon's getting us to realize it's formative. And it's ever so slowly but surely tilting us in the direction of a particular image of the good life because of which we become a particular kind of person. And the question we need to ask is what's the life we're looking for? Take an audit of your micro practices. Just journal tonight when you get home. What's your week look like between all the things that you do in life? Second, shape space for creativity. Um, back in the day, the heart of the home was the fireplace. And slowly but surely, that became the kitchen, and now it's probably the TV, the movie room. And on one level, there's nothing wrong with this. But if you realise that everything in our life, the environments we sort of set ourselves up in, is a nudge in a certain direction, then wouldn't it be wonderful to develop the capacities that God's given us if we shaped our space that, in a way that rewards creativity rather than consumption? Now, Kath and I love a good movie, shared about that last week, nothing wrong with it. But man, I want to become the kind of person who can just have long conversations over a cup of tea with my wife. Man, I want to become the kind of person that when dinner's ready, I don't have this knee-jerk reaction to stream Netflix. And it's not to say that it's evil, it's just to say, what are we looking for? What do I want? Here's what I want. I want to become the kind of person that just longs to sit in unhurried relationship, contemplation with my wife, with friends that come over for dinner, I don't want to rush them out the door because I need to catch up on that show. Man, what would I be missing? I think I'd be missing a lot. I want to become that kind of person. How can you shape your space, particularly your living space for creativity? Third, structure time for work and for rest. One Hebrew rabbi, a more modern thinker, said that God's architecture is time. Isn't that awesome? You've got architectures, you know, architects out in the streets here in Brisbane City making beautiful, beautiful buildings, but God, His architecture is time, and He wants to design your life in a way that redeems the time you've got. Andy Crouch has this helpful phrase. He says, one hour a day, one day a week, and one week a year, we're going to turn off all our devices, not because they're evil, but because we want to be present with one another, unhurried, uninterrupted, unhindered relationship. One hour a day, one day a week, one week a year. What would it look like for you to structure time for work and for rest? Fourth, keep the bedroom sacred. There's something holy about the first few seconds you start to breathe when you wake up. You know that? Something sacred. The psalmist says that God's mercies are new every day. And we miss it as a culture. Wake up, check our phone. Sort of pump it into our bloodstream like the ethernet that it is. And here's, I would just say, man, how could you make the bedroom sacred? A few years ago, Kath and I bought this ugly alarm clock and it does the job. It does the job. And we wake up and we breathe, inhale, exhale. 
God, what are you saying today? Thank you for today. Fifth, engage devices with a specific purpose. I talked before about the experience of having an intention, finding yourself distracted, giving over the most valuable thing you've got, your attention. What if you just had a specific goal every time you opened an app? It's like, oh, I just got to get that information from that church event, then I'm done, and it's back to nature. You know, I don't know. Let's not get too romantic about it. We don't need to become Amish, but just follow with me with the beautiful vision. And lastly, chase awe and wonder. One of the movements that's like rocking the world right now is this Japanese thing called Shinrin-yoku. I don't know if it's spiritually good or bad, so just like research this one for yourself. But it's like taking the world by storm and the way to translate the term is forest bathing. And there's this craving from people to which this literature says a hearty amen for nature. And people are just giving, they're talking about the results of just spending 20 minutes a day walking in the garden. Do you know God designed us to walk with Him in the garden? The psalmist says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Do you think that if you spent time in nature, you'd have God saying something to you? He might minister to your heart. Chase awe and wonder. Get into nature. Go for a walk. Leave the device at home, not because it's evil, but because there is wonder and awe to be experienced. Pleasures evermore as we step into creation. Can I ask us to stand as we close? We started with the promise that if any topic was going to be dense, it'd be today in the next few weeks. And on one level, we, we, just, we don't want to make any apologies for that, but we just want to open up the fact that, man, some of you might just feel completely stirred as I'm speaking this afternoon. You might find yourself here thinking, oh, man, I would love, I would love to take forward this, this notion of contending for a relationship in a technological world. But some of you here are asking the question, man, what would it look like for me to meet Jesus? We can do all, put all the boundaries we want in life around technology to try and become the human God intends us to become, but it's all for nothing if we're not ultimately connected to the source of life itself. And so I just want to open up an opportunity. If you found your heart stirred as I'm speaking, not because you're like, yeah, tech, I froth it, you know, but you, you're just like, there's this sense in you that there's a life here that you're on the cusp of reaching out for. I just want to say it comes by grace through faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Christians love to say, and I'll say it with them, that Jesus did everything that we should have done on our behalf and he died the death we deserved. He made himself disconnected from God so that we, by grace through faith, can be connected to God. And so I just want to open up the invitation. If you don't know Jesus, maybe this is the night where you can start talking to him for the very first time. So can I invite everyone in the room just to close their eyes, to bow their heads? And I want to give you an opportunity. If as I'm speaking, you say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. Yes, for the first time, I want to start this conversation with God. Can I invite you just to raise your hand? Thank you very much. I see that hand. And in raising your hand, what you're saying is, I'm, I'm signaling to Alex that his prayer is with and for me. But maybe there's others of us in the room that want to raise their hand too. So I'm just going to leave a moment open and I want to invite you to raise your hand. If that's you, why don't you raise that nice and high so I can see. 
Leave it open for a few more seconds. Wonderful. We're going to pray, and as we pray, I just want to invite the whole church to pray alongside with me. We're just going to say, God, sorry for the life that I've lived disconnected from you. Thank you for what you've done in Jesus to connect me to God. Please come into my life and fill me by your Spirit. So as we do that, why don't, why don't we just say it all out loud together so none of us are alone, we're all with one voice. Let's pray together. God, sorry that I've lived my life disconnected from you. Thank you that in Jesus, you've done what's needed to connect me to you. God, would you please fill my life? Help me follow Jesus. I give you my heart, my soul, my mind and my strength. You're my Saviour and my Lord. And it's in your name I pray, amen. We're going to worship now, friends, in two things. Take some of that practical stuff forward and reflect on your own tonight, tomorrow, at small group, however you want to do it. Don't let this be a sermon that you listen to and walk away from. Take this forward. But secondly, I just want to say we're about to worship and there's probably no experience that is more embodied and fully human than worship. It's a heart, soul, mind, strength kind of experience. Some of us use our whole strength because we belt out lyrics at the top of our voice and our neighbour next to us thinks, man, I wish they'd use their mind to reflect on how helpful that belting is. Others of us just sing from the neck up and we're just like, God, I love you and that's okay. And, And there's some more strength that God would invite you to use, you know? This is a heart, soul, mind, strength kind of activity. And so as we worship now, we've got one song left. We're a bit over time, but that's okay. We're family. And I just want to say, what if we threw our whole selves into this next little song together, lifting out one song as one voice to our Heavenly Father? So whatever you need to do to make yourself ready for that, go ahead and do that. And as we do that, I'll be doing it with you. Let's sing together, church.